Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host, Patrick, from Pullstring Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick. Hi, good morning, Mark. Patrick, I would like you to meet um, a great guy and uh, actually tied to the show. Oh, nice. It's the president of California Lutheran University, Chris Kimball. Hey, Chris, good morning. Good morning and Happy New Year to you both. Well, thank you. And thanks for coming on the show. And just at the uh, the head of this, I'd just love to say that um, we've appreciated now, what, 130 episodes into this that um, California Lutheran University's um, School of Management and Gerhardt, uh, the dean, stepped in very, I mean, after a couple of episodes and says, hold it, hold it. This is right in our wheelhouse. We need to support this. So on, on behalf of all the listeners who have enjoyed these conversations, thank you very much. You're, you're most welcome. Any chance for the university to be involved with uh high-quality educational outreach that serves the community. Couldn't find a better fit than that. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to get involved. Well, it's, it's, um, it's been a great partnership because we're able to have conversations with people that um, civilians just don't come in contact with. Um, and and I, it hit me, I think it was the third professor we talked to and I said, hold it. So the only people who get to witness this wisdom are your students and other academics. So the general pop just doesn't get it. And so I thought, okay, well, one of the things I want to do then with the podcast is make sure that we become a, a voice into that classroom and be able to, to talk to people. So that's you know, and we've got an endless stream of really interesting people. As you know, you listen to the show, and and uh, there's and and I also I want to say this that what I find very interesting because for those of you who are listening to us from from Poland and Israel <laughs> and uh, all over the world, um, Thousand Oaks is a, a small bedroom community north in north of Los Angeles where uh, the university is located and. Um, you have been able to attract some world-class talent to the to the university, haven't you, Chris? We sure have um, in a number of our schools, including the School of Management that you've noted. Uh, we've got people from all over the world who wanted to work here, including our dean that you mentioned, Gerhard Oppeltaler, who's Austrian, and he's surrounded himself with a faculty and staff over there that represent, I think, every corner of the globe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we, we certainly believe that uh, part of what gets them here is the opportunity to work at a creative university that gives them freedom to uh, create. But we also want to recognize um, Southern California and uh, Ventura County and Santa Barbara County. The whole Central Coast is an attraction to 
Yeah, that that in itself is a great place to come to school. Tell me, how long, uh, just to save people from Googling this, uh, how long <laughs> has the university been around? We uh, are just a couple of years past our 50th anniversary. The university was incorporated in 1959. The first classes were offered in 1961. And our first graduating class uh, was 1964. So uh, we're, we're pretty young and certainly young for an independent uh, institution. There are not too many that were founded uh, after World War II. What's that world like? I'm, I'm, I've got to imagine that's a pretty challenging position to be in when you're fighting up against, you know, 400-year-old colleges. Well, it is, uh, and some of the advantage they have uh, are in market awareness. You're around that long. People know your name. Your endowments sure grow uh, the more the years go on. Um, the generous alums from the class of 1943 don't exist because here because we don't have a <laughs> right. Um, on the other hand, for me, and I, I hope I'm speaking for a lot of us here, uh, what is a great opportunity and joy is the forward-looking nature of it. As one of my predecessors say, we're not old enough to have a history. We're all about the future. Yeah. That is, there's not a sense that, well, you know, Cal Lutheran's done it this way for 100 years, so we can't touch that. We haven't had time to become tradition-bound and locked in, so we're able to be creative and nimble, and that's one of the things that got me here to the West Coast was to be in that kind of uh, opportunity, and I think in a market space that is very competitive now, including with older institutions, the, the fact that we're kind of young and energetic and looking forward, not wistfully at the past, is a great advantage. One of the things I think about, I, I, I have this picture of Ivy League, and the buildings have been around so long that they're completely covered with plants, and that um, it's, it's all about tradition. I mean, as you said, this is the way we've done it. This is, the, you know, it's always like that, and that's an expectation. Can you give me an example of how you don't act like that? Well, I, I could give a whole uh, list of examples. Um, we were pretty quick to move into graduate education. Uh, most uh, places operated for a century or two or three only doing undergrad. Calu did that undergrad only for about 20 years at the most and realized that the educational needs of the region went beyond just the bachelor's degree. Uh, more recently, some of the things that you know well in the School of Management uh, that are a little bit outside of the box for traditional places, we jumped right into. Uh, we were early in uh, online programs. Um, our recent move to bring in the uh, closed Center for Nonprofit Leadership down here in Ventura County uh, was the kind of thing I think at a more tradition-bound place would have said, well, we've never done that before. Why would we get into that now? Whereas our approach is, hey, that's a great opportunity to do outreach and to serve, in this case, the nonprofit world. Let's let's do it and see what happens. That's interesting. I've not heard it. Tell me more about the Center for Nonprofit Leadership. As you know, Santa Barbara is... Um, there's, I mean, the, just this region is a huge concentration of nonprofits. I'm sure because of the money that's here. Um, but I know yeah. that there's, what, 1,800 
uh, you know, large ones. And if you dig into the ones that are, you know, two to four people, there that number swells up to around 3,500. So having a Center for Nonprofit Leadership, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, the, the Center for Nonprofit Leadership had existed for, uh, I'm going to say, about 15 years. Don't quote me on that. Uh, at the Ventura County Community Foundation, uh, and it served nonprofits, big and small, which, as you say, there are hundreds in Ventura County alone, providing uh, programming, sometimes courses, sometimes just one-time workshops, brown bags, and the like, uh, aimed at professional development for nonprofit staff and board members in a whole range of things right, from right. fundraising, marketing, increasing social media, et cetera. Well, about a year and a half ago, because of challenges that they continue to face, the Community Foundation decided to shutter the um, operation of the nonprofit center. Um, and we decided, based on our own judgment, but also the strong outcry from the community that we need it back. It's such an important resource. The university picked it up, moved it over in terms of the personnel, Dina Jensen, the leader of it, and some of the other resources, and sort of relaunched it uh, back in the fall, September, here uh, operating on campus uh, to serve. And uh, it's one of those things where there was a clear need. Yep. Uh, all of us are involved in nonprofits of one size or another, and it's a very challenging environment and the opportunity to get uh, professional development at an affordable price from experts who often give their time uh, is really important. And uh, the partnership between Ventura County and Santa Barbara County around nonprofits and nonprofit leadership is something that uh, is going to continue to enhance and make nonprofits in both counties more effective. And we're proud to be part of that. Chris, can you talk to us a little bit about how, how do you vet and find the, the faculty for a program like that when you're starting from scratch? Uh, how do you, do you, do you develop search committees or are you, what, what's your philosophy on looking for, for faculty that could be world-class, uh, you know, on, a, on that kind of programming? Well, in, in the case of that one, uh, the, the executive director and many of the core faculty uh, were known, had been vetted, mm. and mm. were people that we just picked up the relationship with um, and have continued to add. Uh, in our other programs, like the School of Management, we'll take that as an example, or College of Arts and Sciences, we will almost always do a national uh, or international search with a search committee made up of both people from that area, and we always like to seed it with a couple from other areas of the institution. And the eye is on someone who will be a game changer hmm. by coming here uh, and someone who really wants to be in our particular kind of environment. There, that means a commitment to students as well as just research. Say if someone just wants to do research and hates teaching, this is not the place. <laughs> right, right. Uh, if, if someone doesn't like the uncertainty that comes with innovation and entrepreneurship, then this probably isn't the place for them. But if they like those things, if they like to tie their research to teaching, if they like working with community, whether not-for-profit entities or working with for-profit uh, companies off campus, 
doing practical work, if they like that kind of thing, then we want to make the case that this is right. So it's uh, focused not just on what the resume says, because there are a lot of talented people out there in all kinds of academic areas, but does the resume tie to a philosophy, a commitment, a sense of calling that fits with the university? And that's what we look for above all. So tell me how your resume and your fascination with baseball history ties to being <laughs> the president of a university. Oh, I'm not sure it ties uh, correctly. Uh, it does have some uh, advantages. Of it. I don't have a lot of time for it. I've been able to teach it a little bit, uh, which keeps me in the classroom, and that's important. Um, I think all too often... You get into senior uh, administrative roles in a university, you're out of the classroom and kind of forget what that's all about. And that's the core business. Um, and in my case, they're always in the, in the teaching is you have to explain, look, this really isn't about the sport between the foul lines. This is more about the sport as a window into American history and culture. So we're going to talk a lot about race relations, labor relations, gender, the impact of war, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a history class. And uh, for me, uh, that's the way I understand the world. And it's a way to connect with uh, students. And I think that's uh, important. I have even less time to do the research end of it that I was doing. I still got a book that uh, remains unfinished. But again, it's a reminder that uh, that. I have to do and remember how difficult it is, the kind of work that our faculty are doing day in and day out. So uh, baseball is a great conversation starter. Uh, it's, a, I, I think, a great way to, to understand, particularly this country. Um, hmm. And also it happens to be my particular vehicle to stay connected with the core enterprise of what the university is about rather than being just locked in a in an office and meeting rooms day after day. Or, or at cocktail parties raising funds. Or at cocktail parties raising funds. I want right. to indulge a statement you said in there just for a few seconds. Of, of You said that it, uh, it's a great way to understand this country. I want to I hear uh, uh, the professor's quick few minutes on that, on, on how, how is baseball a good way to understand this, this contemporary environment we find ourselves in? Well, uh, let me just throw uh, two examples. Um, one of the sort of ongoing, I'll say, challenges in American life is dealing with issues of race mm -hmm. and racial identity. Yes. Um, baseball has had that, not only the familiar stories of segregation in big league baseball, the breaking of the color line, as it was called, by Jackie Robinson. I think everyone knows that. Uh, and I do like to point out that Jackie Robinson integrated big league baseball several years before the Supreme Court struck down segregation, mm. uh, particularly in the in the public schools. So baseball, even though its record on race was not good, they were a little ahead of the rest of the uh, country. But there are also in baseball all kinds of examples about how race can be a confusing, conflicted area. For example, there were numerous cases during the segregated era in which people of uh, African-American heritage uh, were passed off as being Caribbean, Cuban usually, hmm. uh, even to the extent of pretending to speak Spanish. Um, 
to to get around the segregation line. Um, there were also uh, there's a famous case, should be even more famous, of the African American professional leagues, the so-called Negro leagues, um, integrating at the same time Major League Baseball brought in Jackie Robinson. That is, the Negro leagues brought in a white player, huh. um, and. Like the big leagues, they did their training camps in the spring in Florida where there was strict segregation. And just like Jackie Robinson had to stay in different hotels than his teammates, this white player had to stay in different hotels than his teammates on the Negro League team that he played with, the Cleveland Buckeyes. Um, both Jackie Robinson and this fellow, his name was Eddie Klepp, when they would go to uh, some of these communities to play exhibition games would be driven out of town by people who didn't like seeing a mixing of the races. Um, another example um, that is is kind of relevant in this age of sort of U.S. Uh, Pacific relations is the number of players um, who went back and forth between uh, the United States and Japan playing professional baseball who might be of Japanese heritage, but born and raised in the U.S. and U.S. citizens. Hmm. And then, uh, in some cases, being treated in the U.S. as Japanese, even though they weren't by nationality and didn't speak the language. In other cases, going over to Japan and being treated as Americans, even though they thought of themselves as Japanese. Hmm. Um, so all kinds of things around race, which we've seen um, even in the person of President Obama in the last eight years get played out in baseball in uh, kind of fascinating ways. Another area that I would add that uh, baseball is a great example of uh, Americans, American culture always having um, what I would describe as a mixed feeling about free enterprise and money-making. On the mm -hmm. one hand, we all support that to some degree, but get a little nervous if someone makes too much money. Yeah, the the overrated tag gets added quickly. The what? The overrated tag, like yeah. to, to a rod. Yeah, oh, right. he's overrated. Because yeah, he makes too much money. Right. Right. Uh, he should be happy with less. Yeah. Um, and and we're seeing some. I don't want to delve into contemporary politics too much, but one of the arguments is that Trump and some of his appointees are too wealthy. Right. To serve. Right. And again, you can see that in baseball. Well, it's OK if folks make a little bit of money, but too much is somehow morally questioned. Do, do you think it's so that? Well, inside of baseball, that's a much longer answer than you wanted. Well, I, th I think it's an excellent answer. I, I always wonder in the baseball world or, or all professional sports, um, if it's it's not tolerable by the blue collar worker who has vested, you know, all of this time and energy into supporting the team to watch millionaires. Uh, move about the field, you know, like there, there's that kind of like dirty secret of like, oh, these these all of these people on the field uh, make more money than I'll ever see in my lifetime, but yet here I am rooting for them and treat you know like empathizing with them uh, when they do something great or when they do something you know when they miss when they miss a catch or or something like that. You really have to put yourself out there on the field, which is hard to relate to a a, a ten millionaire. And I think in politics it sounds familiar that it would be hard to relate to a, a billionaire making choices for me. Um, on the cabinet, is that do you, is that a dirty secret? Do you think that that is a, a struggle? 
I, it, it's an ongoing struggle, uh, and I'll just uh, pass along two anecdotes that maybe come at it from two different angles. One, there's the famous quote of Babe Ruth, mm. who really was the first multimillionaire uh, baseball player. Yep. Uh, when someone pointed out to him that he made more money than, than U.S. President Hoover did. <laughs> yeah. And Babe Ruth's response was, well, I had a better year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that reflects you know, the, the question was, well, wait a minute, why is a pro baseball player making more money than the, the leader of the United States? Mm-hmm. But then the comeback is you have thousands of people paying money to go watch that player. Yeah. And he's a, uh, he was a revenue generator. Um, A-Rod was a revenue generator in the way that most of us are not. Right. Um, and that's a reality, too. What I like to tell my students is many of us, and I include myself in this, think back when we were a kid, baseball, and I think you could apply it to other pro sports, let's say pro baseball. When I was a kid, they played for the love of the game. It was more pure. Now it's all about the money. Well, that was said by people back in the 1860s. Yeah, yeah. Talking about, you know, when I was a kid, baseball, <laughs> sure, now it's corrupt. And yeah. in fact, you can find people making that complaint about three years after the sport got started. Yeah, yeah. So it's been there from the beginning that we come to it usually in our youth when you don't really know about money and right. contracts yeah. and free agents. All that you just think. then we grow up, get to understand the world a bit better, realize that these players are corporations themselves and so forth, and that awareness then makes us think, ah, well, the world's not as pure as I thought. It's more corrupt, but in fact, it's been that way from the beginning. It's more about us than a change in how the game is uh, played or what motivates people to play it. Do you have time for baseball movies? Uh, not nearly enough time. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite baseball movie? Our listener can go check it out on Netflix. Um, well, that's a great question. The The Natural. Yeah, I knew you yeah. movie. Anybody who's read the book, the uh, novel by Bernard Malamud, upon which it's based, it completely goes in the opposite direction. <laughs> uh, that's Hollywood. As a, as a film, it stands well. Um uh, a Field of Dreams. Sure. Mm-hmm. Wonderful movie. It it perpetuates the myth that baseball was a rural game, which it wasn't. It was an urban game. Uh, but it's a great film. For me as a historian, the one that I like the best is not very well known. It's called Eight Men Out, uh, mm-hmm. done by the independent filmmaker John Sayles, who's done all kinds sure. of things. Usually political edge Chicago uh, based on a book on the Chicago uh, Black Sox scandal throwing the World Series mm-hmm. um, and it's largely accurate uh, doesn't really invent any characters that didn't exist covers a lot of terrain between the ball players and the gamblers and the new commissioner Judge Landis etc and it's a um, it's a film I'll show in my classes uh, because of the history involved uh, a little less accurate but i think one that also conveys um something that was forgotten until about 15 years ago the women's professional league mm-hmm. the tom hanks uh, mm-hmm. league of their own mm-hmm. uh, movie which has got some great lines in it mm-hmm. 
My uh, my wife was uh, NCAA Woman of the Year fast pitch softball at the University of Hawaii, and so we we like baseball around our house. Though she now says she's retired and won't. Everybody when they hear that they want to get her on their team, but <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't do that anymore. I want to uh, stay on baseball, but I want to switch to. Uh, I know you that this book, this this one you're working on, is around baseball stadiums' history and their home cities, and it, it got me thinking about how the stadium there's it ha, there's a sense of community around that stadium, very much so. And what I learned as I first started working with um, California Lutheran three years ago. Uh, was that you really see yourselves as a center in the community. And I'm curious what kind of parallel you might draw between those, between the, the university's physical plant and the community and baseball's stadiums and the community. Can, can you draw a parallel for us? Yeah, I can. I think that's a wonderful question, and I'm not sure I would have drawn the parallel until you raise it. So thank you for that. Um, I think I'll be able to work that. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, you know, I like to say that uh, even though it is an independent or private university, uh, Cal Lutheran needs to be a public good. Um, and part of what we have is uh, a, a physical plant, considerable assets, not just in Thousand Oaks, but as you know, in our entrepreneurship center in sure. Westlake Village, and we have Woodland Hills, Oxnard, Santa Maria, Berkeley, etc. All of those are physical spaces which should add aesthetically to the community around them, be attractive, but also available to people to use, whether it's to come in and watch an athletic game, hear a concert, put on an event. Uh, we should be here and use that as a resource so we are seen as an important contributor to the fabric of whatever community we're in. And our, obviously our main campus is here in Thousand Oaks. And I think uh, ballparks or other uh, athletic stadia provide much the same kind of context, particularly those that are anchored in urban or urban-like areas. It's a little harder if you've got a place that's just surrounded by parking lot and fields and there's not much there, like the old uh, Met Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota. But uh, places like Staples Center here in L.A. is a key component of a developing urban entertainment district. Dodger Stadium, even though it is surrounded by parking, given its location, its views sitting up there looking over downtown, that's a that's a city treasure. That's a regional treasure uh, that people identify with without worrying too much about who happens to own it at any particular time. Um, and I think many, I would argue that many um, professional sports organizations increasingly understand their physical plant as something that should serve the community, and so make it available for tours. When I was a kid, they ballparks didn't didn't have tours. I, mean, I, I grew up in the Boston area with Fenway Park. Back in the day, they didn't have a tour system where you could go and do that. Now they all do it, sure, because uh, they want to give people another chance to come in and uh, look around and feel the history and the emotion and so forth in the place. Yeah, granted, they get 10 bucks out of you. I was, ju I was just going to be really cynical there and say someone <laughs> thought that was a new revenue stream. Yeah, it's not a huge revenue stream. I think if uh, that $10 tour turns into a $50 ticket when you come back to watch a game, then you're talking. 
Or as you uh, exit uh, through the gift shop and it turns into a $75 yeah, well, sweatshirt true. purchase. You usually end up at least leaving with a hat, whether I like the team or not. Yeah. Uh, but I think there is an element of um, treating it the way a, a city might do a museum. that You pay a few bucks to go in and look at it. Even if you're not a great museum goer, but it's something you understand as key to the identity of the particular city that, that you're in. So I want to vector now towards um, history. Um, you know, that's your, your background is in history and uh, in, in a lot of different areas. I'm curious when you, at what age you became fascinated with history? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question because when I interview candidates, I always ask them, when did you know you were going to be what you've become? Yep. When did you know you were in line to become a historian or chemist and so forth? So I appreciate someone turning the tables on me. Again, you're uh, welcome. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was interested in, in history as a kid. I don't quite know why other than, you know, growing up in the Boston area, it's kind of around you a lot. Uh, um, yep. I, I like the stories about it, the kind of real story about real people doing real stuff. I've been a little more attuned to that than a, a more theoretical subject. Um, but I, that by no means meant I want to be a historian because I really didn't know what that was. Uh, as an undergrad in college, uh, I ended up majoring in history for, for two reasons. One, I kind of liked it, and it was interesting. And two, I had a professor who was fantastic, and I'm uh, like a lot of people. Now we're getting to the nub of it. Teacher, it was, there was a person uh, there. Tell me about that uh, professor. It, yeah, it's a teacher or a mentor, and that's what I find in my job interviews with folks. Almost invariably, there was somebody who touched uh, their life. That changed. In my case, I, I, I had a high school teacher um, back east who it turned out originally from Southern California. I had no idea at the time. Uh, and then in uh, college, uh, one that uh, I never got to know particularly well personally because I went to a pretty big school and the classes were mostly pretty big. But he was a fascinating lecturer who knew how to tell great stories in a compelling way, who could see the big picture. And it was just fascinating, a lot of fun. So I, I kind of like to be like mm. that guy. There is uh, a, a, a famous, and I don't remember his name, uh, both my kids went to Santa Barbara High School, and there was a famous uh, history teacher there who was always in costume. Whatever he was mm -hmm. teaching, he would come and sh he would he just brought it to life, and he was he was known as being very quirky and eccentric, but everybody loved him, and I'm sure he was one of those teachers in people's lives. I want to vector a little bit here on history. I became interested in history probably when I was 40 and started traveling, and I started history became very important to me. I just wanted to know the backstory on the places that I was traveling to. And I'd never been interested in it. And then I found that my fascination with history has grown to, I mean, I, I can't get enough of it now. And I'm curious, and I've come to a, a philosophy, and I'm curious what you're going to say about this, is that I think history is wasted on young people in school. 
and that we I'm going rogue Patrick yeah yeah uh, I love it. it and that um, we shouldn't teach I mean, actually shouldn't teach history uh, in school but that you have to come back to school when you're 40 and take history classes then so I so I, I can, yeah I know this is why this you is, don't run an institution <laughs> Well, you know, Mark, Mark, I'll, I'll walk halfway down that road with you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Professor. I, I think for most people, you're exactly right. There, there are a few oddballs like me that as kids get into history. But for most people, it's not terribly interesting. When you, and I think it's in the developmental process. When your whole personal life is about the future as a young person, looking ahead. Right you're not reflective on what's gone on before in the past. You're not interested in those kinds of issues. And I think for most folks, um, it does grow over time. As one gets one's own personal history, you get a greater appreciation for history of places and people and events and all that kind of thing. Now, I probably can't get all the way down the road with you and say we shouldn't do any teaching of it for young people. Um, but I do love the idea of requiring everybody at age 40 to come back okay. and do it. So if we can get that through the state legislature, um, I'm with you shoulder to shoulder. I'll give you an example, Mark. I just, uh, over the uh, winter holidays, had an opportunity to be in Central Europe um, a little bit. And um, my, my field was U.S. history and a little bit of European history and so forth. But it was never a keen interest of mine. But as I went over there, traveled around, looked at some places, started to see the difference in architecture from places that were influenced by uh, Catholic tradition versus Protestant, mm. I said, well, I want to know more about that. And when I was a kid traveling around Europe, kid 2021, even though a history major, it didn't grab me in the same way it does now. So I think in that, I'm like everybody else. There are things that you pass by because you're on a rush somewhere. Now I said, oh, wait a minute. I want to learn more about that. Tell me more. Does, like I said, I think I'm halfway there with you. Well, oh, thank you, and we'll uh, we'll get on uh, change. We'll get. A, we have had a few politicians in here. Let's let's uh, talk to them. See what we can do. Uh, <laughs> and we think about history, and I think about Central Europe. I think about the fact that the Lutheran movement is 500 years old ish. Is that right? Uh, the, 2017 is being celebrated as the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation. So it is 500 on the button. And what is uh, what does that look like at California Lutheran? Notices on all well, the doors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we're nailing 95 theses on. You know, in, in a uh, practical sense, it will take uh, the form of a number of public events, lecture series, uh, symposia, uh, a number of faculty are working it into their curriculum and, and so forth. And I know there are folks who are doing a couple of study abroad uh, experiences going to Germany to, to take part in the uh, Reformation celebrations there. I think more generally, it is an opportunity for us to talk to ourselves because most of the students, most of the faculty, most of the staff here are not Lutheran. So talk to ourselves, but then talk to the broader community about what are the values that come through the Lutheran tradition and education that we prize. 
not to say that they're not present in other traditions, but that are authentic to ours, that are relevant to our own time and relevant to the future. Uh, and it's not so much about whether you sit and read the millions of words written by Martin Luther, but talk instead on our campus and outside of our campus about some of the core commitments of the Lutheran tradition that we think are really important in how people are educated and how people engage the world today. So that's going to be how we really try to center our uh, commemoration of the 500. What I've found very interesting, I've, I've had uh, occasion to have fairly close relationships with Lutherans um, in my past and uh, with uh, the Jesuits as well. I was, um, I was a chef for the Jesuit novitiate uh, here in uh, Montecito for five years. And what I found about both is while they are, you know, obviously faith-based, they're not, um, neither of those communities are in my face about religion. They're faith-based, but they're not, uh, I did, they don't witness to me the whole time, as opposed to when I was the chef um, at Westmont, which was very different. <laughs> and I'm curious about being faith-based and how that uh, either attracts or detracts uh, from people coming to the university, because it's, it, it, you're right, there's a, the philosophy around education, which is different than a, a religious mandate. Is that fair to say? That, I, that's very fair to say, and it's a question with which we struggle all the time, in a good way, um, because we can't kid ourselves. You have Lutheran in your middle name. <laughs> yeah, Most right. people don't know what that means. Right, right. And some people think, well, it must be a Christian university, and I think a Christian university means X, Y, and Z, which don't apply to us. Right. And I'll just say there, there are... Um, a number of Christian universities, colleges, uh, whose approach is that to be a student or to work there, you have to sign on to a certain set of doctrines and behaviors and that kind of thing. Um, we don't do that. We're, we're open to all. We don't expect people to agree on a particular theology. Um, we don't expect people to be believers if they're not and so on. Um, I, I joke Lutherans can't agree on doctrine among themselves. How can we expect others to sign on? Um, so, uh, and, and you, you will know who some of these other type of schools are. So um, we wrestle a little bit with the fact that what people think they know of us by our name is probably incorrect. Uh, and so we have to have conversations pretty early on. If you're looking for a place that tells you, here's what you have to believe and here's what you have to do, um, then if that's what you want, we're not the place for you. We're all about questioning and dialogue and conversation. Martin Luther used to end kind of every one of his little readings or statements with the question, what does this mean? Mm. And that's where we try to go, is what does this mean? Okay, here are claims made by religious traditions. Here are claims made by atheists. What does it mean? Let's talk about the implications of that. So for us, it's much more uh, trying to pick up, I, I, I say to me, there are really uh, two notions that come out of Martin Luther. And again, I want to be clear, other traditions have these same values too. So I'm not, they're authentic to us, but not exclusive. Uh, one is that, 
um, we all are given gifts and talents. And we're called upon, and you can debate who the caller is, internal, God, whatever, that, that can be debated. But we're all called to be as good as we can be in the areas that our talents have drawn us to, to be the best chef, the best podcast host, the best university president, the best history major, that education should be about developing, polishing, enhancing those gifts and talents. So that's one part, academic excellence, if you will. Then the second part is that the success that one has in one's field or different fields over time as we go through life should be joined to a sense of serving others. You should do well for yourselves. You should do good for others. And I say if we leave, if we have graduates who leave us, no matter what their program is, who are well prepared to be successful in their chosen field and have a sense of giving back, and giving back, as you know, can be done in a lot of ways. It's not just writing a check or, sure. or serving at a sure. soup kit. It's running a good company. It's treating employees fairly. It's making a good – there are all kinds of ways of giving back. But if we – if our education in the end is judged by something, it's that mix of quality preparation to be successful in the world joined to a sense of helping others that need our help. Well, if and you can turn out 4,000-plus students um, on a regular basis that are doing that, then you guys are you're doing the good job there. That, that is our aspiration. And as you said, that's different than saying, here's a particular theology or belief in God or how God works that you have to subscribe to. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think, is the second most famous Lutheran Garrison Keeler? <laughs> well... He's considered that, but he's not Lutheran, actually. You know, I was I was thinking that <laughs> as as I said that, I went, hold it, I bet you he's not even Lutheran. Yeah, well, he he certainly is. If not, say he may be the greatest interpreter of Lutheranism, certainly in America, out there, and grew up surrounded by it. Um, but uh, in in fact, was raised Presbyterian, I believe. I love um, it. But everybody would say, within the Lutheran world, particularly in the upper Midwest, if you want to understand us, listen to Garrison Keillor, because <laughs> he gets funny. I, I went to school on uh, several folks that I had close relationships with, and I learned about them by listening to Prairie Home Companion every Saturday. <laughs> so, um, Well, and you probably know this, I hope uh, appreciate it, but the person who gave his ranch land here in Thousand Oaks to the university when it was launched, made it possible to be here, was in fact a bachelor Norwegian farmer. I love it. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. That's fantastic. And a uh, uh, plug for um, for you that you can listen to Prairie Home Companion on KCLU, which is the university's uh, NPR radio station right there on campus. That's right, and serving the entire Central Coast. So thank you for that uh, plug for a great station. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, Patrick. I don't know if you've seen this app called NPR One. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, very familiar. Uh, it is um, every day. Listen to it most of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that. So, um, Chris, this, is, this time has, boom, gone, just like that. It was a super quick conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. How do, do you have a... Uh, an external site where you keep 
your musings and things? I don't even know if you have time to write, but is there a place that I wasn't able to find where people could find you? Uh, no, in short. <laughs> I don't have much time to write, uh, and when I do, it's mostly working on my book, uh, which I'm not convinced even when done anybody would be interested in. Uh, but I have not done an effective job of... Uh, getting, as you say, my musings on higher ed and history and other things out there on a blog or anything like that. I, I find people I'm don't have time to read, <laughs> but they do have time to listen, which is what we love about the podcast. And we come to the part in the show where uh, our listener has been waiting for this for 47 minutes now. Patrick? That might be an exaggeration. Well, <laughs> I've been waiting for this. Okay, that, yeah. Yes, okay. this is true. Yeah. Uh, Chris, um, if we were to give a title to this conversation and future generations were to look back and go, hmm, wonder what that was about, what would we call this 45-minute conversation? I'd call it baseball and Martin Luther in the shaping of higher education. <laughs> okay. That'll get him. New Base. York Times bestseller right there. And the shaping, what was it? The shaping of higher education. And uh, I love that. The, see, you just nailed that. Let's work. Martin. Martin Luther and circling the bases in education. Something along. we got to work a baseball. Yeah, definitely a baseball. Yeah, so there. we'll get, uh, get, you know what I think you should do? You should give an assignment to uh, your crack marketing staff there <laughs> and have them email me. But for right now, I've got a nice working title. Chris, thank you so much. And again, thank you uh, so much. And again, to California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press. We just, we can't do the show without your support. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, send us a note, partner at 805connect.com. And Patrick, in addition to read, write, and review, or rate, write, and review, what could our listener do right now to support the show? Well, I, uh, you know, I always try to go with the theme of the show. So uh, I think find a, a, a young person who is seeking some amount of inspiration and take them to a baseball game. Uh, I love with, that. Whether it's professional, local, uh, there is somebody out there playing baseball right now uh, this afternoon. So uh, go find that and uh, support them with a little bit of cheering and uh, a little bit of philosophical thought about what it means to you and your community. Knowing my grandkids are, um, they're actually looking for their which club they want to get on nice. starting in mid February. So I would love to hear from you specifically if you have questions or an idea for guests for an upcoming show. Drop me a line, Mark at 805connect.com. And thank you very much. I, I love reading those emails there. You have such great ideas for upcoming guests. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.